0: WNYC is teaming up with NPR to bring you a new daily podcast, Consider This. We'll bring you the biggest news stories and what's happening in our community to help you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Voices Lost in Snow by Mavis Gallant.
1: Two persons descend the street, stepping carefully. The child, reminded every day to keep her hands still, gesticulates wildly. There is the flash of a red mitten. The story was chosen
0: by Margaret Atwood, whose work was first published in the magazine in 1970. She's the author of more than 40 books, and her latest novel, Mad Adam, is coming out this fall. Margaret Atwood joins us from a studio in Toronto. Hi, Margaret.
1: Hello, Deborah.
0: Oh, Mavis Gallant is a compatriot of yours, though she hasn't lived in Canada for 60 years or more. Was was her work an influence on you when you were becoming a writer?
1: I would say in my, in my early years as a writer, I, I stumbled across her, in fact, in The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And I wondered who is this person, <laughs> and I remember the story very clearly. It's the one about the convent school in which the little girls have to wear rubber aprons in the bathtub.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Do you remember <laughs> that?
0: That's one of the, one of the Canada
1: ones. Yeah, yeah, it is. So I yeah. thought this person must be Canadian. Who is she, and how can I read more of these stories? Were you able to find more? Well, yes, because because then she started uh, collecting and publishing in collections. Mm-hmm. And after that point, I, I came to know her. In fact, I came to know her through Graham Gibson, who was at that point doing interviews of writers for the CBC, mm-hmm. and he he had gone over and spent some time with with Mavis in Paris. In Paris, with with whom he got along pretty well. Mm-hmm. She generally got along a bit better with with men than than with women at first, and there are there are some clues as to that in the story.
0: <laughs> There's some reasons <laughs> but we, but why, but she probably. finally
1: came to accept both of us, and and the last time we saw her, we were taking her out to lunch at the Dome, which was her favorite restaurant there. She's not in tippity-top health at the moment, but she was then. She was still okay.
0: And was she in person, what you had expected from the writing?
1: Yes, in a way. I mean, you always have to place a person back in time to a certain extent, but she was very sharp, very tough, very independent, and very funny. This story, Voices Lost in Snow,
0: is one of a series with the main character, a girl called Lynette Muir, who's growing up in Montreal or actually living just outside of the city. A French word comes up, the French word "frôler," which means to brush against. Do you think that there's anything else that listeners need to know about the story before they
1: hear it? Probably that Mavis herself said this is the closest I ever came to autobiography mm-hmm. and that she chose the name Lynette because her own name, Mavis, is a word for a nightingale, and linnet is also a bird. So I think that, and the fact that in the years in which he was writing, the French community was really quite separate from the English one, so it was eccentric of her mother to pick up with a French doctor. It would have been considered quite eccentric.
0: Yeah, her parents were Anglophone.
1: Her yes, father was, very much was, so. was
0: English, Scottish. and Although uh,
1: they sent poor little Mavis, I just can't believe anybody would do this, but they sent Mavis off to a French convent school when she was four. Right. Because the excuse was they wanted her to get a, a perfect French accent and those nuns were thought to have one.
0: Well, I think we'll, we'll learn a little more about their strange parenting style from the story. Yes, Um, (laughs) I think so, (laughs) such as it was. (laughs) We'll talk a bit more after the story. And now here's Margaret Atwood reading Voices Lost in Snow by Mavis Gallant.
1: Halfway between our two great wars, parents whose own early years had been shaped with Edwardian firmness were apt to lend a tone of finality to quite simple remarks. Because I say so was the answer to why, and a child's response to what did I just tell you could seldom be anything but not to. Not to say, do, touch, remove, go out, argue, reject, eat, pick up, open, shout, appear to sulk, appear to be cross. Dark riddles filled the corners of life because no enlightenment was thought required. Asking questions was being tiresome, while persistent curiosity got one nowhere, at least nowhere of interest. How much has changed? Observe the drift of words descending from adult to child, the fall of personal questions, observations, unnecessary instructions. Before long, the listener seems blanketed. He must hear the voice as authority muffled, a hum through snow. The tone has changed. It may be coaxing, even plaintive, but the words have barely altered. They still claim the ancient right-of-way through a young life. "'Well, old cock,' said my father's friend Archie McEwen, meeting him one Saturday in Montreal, "'how's Charlotte taking life in the country? "'Apparently no one had expected my mother to accept the country in winter.'" "'Well, old cock,' I repeated to a country neighbor, "'Mr. Bainwood, how's life? "'What do you suppose it meant to me "'other than a kind of weather vane?' "'Mr. Bainwood thought it over, "'then came round to our house and complained to my mother. "'It isn't blasphemy,' she said, "'not letting him have much satisfaction from the complaint. "'Still, I had to apologize. "'I'm sorry was a ritual habit,' with even less meaning than old cock. Never say that again, my mother said after he had gone. Why not? Because I've just told you not to. What does it mean? Nothing. It must have been after yet another nothing that one summer's day I ran screaming around a garden, tore the heads off tulips, and, no, let another voice finish it, the only authentic voices I have belong to the dead. Then she ate them. It was my father's custom, if he took me with him to visit a friend on Saturdays, not to say where we were going. He was more taciturn than any man I have known since, but that wasn't all of it. Being young, I was the last person to whom anyone owed an explanation. These Saturdays have turned into one whitish afternoon, a windless snowfall, a steep street. Two persons descend the street, stepping carefully. The child, reminded every day to keep her hand still, gesticulates wildly. There is the flash of a red mitten. I will never overtake this pair. Their voices are lost in snow. We were living in what used to be called the country and is now a suburb of Montreal. On Saturdays, my father and I came in together by train. I went to the doctor, the dentist, to my German lesson. After that, I had to get back to Windsor Station by myself and on time. My father gave me a boy's watch so that the dial would be good and large. I remember the number 83 streetcar trundling downhill and myself, wondering if the watch was slow, asking strangers to tell me the hour. Inevitably, how could it have been otherwise? After his death, which would not be long in coming, I would dream that someone important had taken a train without me. My route to the meeting place, deviated, betrayed by stopped clocks, was always downhill, As soon as I was old enough to understand from my reading of myths and legends that this journey was a pursuit of darkness, its terminal point, a sunless underworld, the dream vanished. Sometimes I would be taken along to lunch with one or another of my father's friends. He would meet the friend at Posey's for oysters or at Drury's or the Windsor Grill. The friend would more often than not be Scottish or English-sounding— and they would talk as if I were invisible, as Archie McEwen had done, and eat what I thought of as English food, grilled kidneys, sweetbreads, which I was too finicky to touch. Both my parents had been made wretched as children by having food forced on them, and so that particular torture was never inflicted on me. However, the manner in which I ate was subject to precise attention. My father disapproved of the North American custom that he called spearing, knife laid on the plate, fork in the right hand. My mother's eye was out for a straight back, invisible chewing, small mouthfuls, immobile silence during the interminable adult loafing over dessert. My mother did not care for food. If we were alone together, she would sit smoking and reading, sipping black coffee, her elbows used as props a posture that would have called for instant banishment had I so much as tried it. Being constantly observed and corrected was like having a fly buzzing around one's plate. At Posey's, the only child, perhaps the only female, I sat up to an oak counter and ate oysters quite neatly, not knowing exactly what they were, and certainly not that they were alive. They were served as in the walrus and the carpenter, with bread and butter, pepper and vinegar. Dessert was a chocolate biscuit. Plates of them stood at intervals along the counter. When my father and I ate alone, I was not required to say much, nor could I expect a great deal in the way of response. After I had been addressing him for minutes, sometimes he would suddenly come to life, and I would know he had been elsewhere. Of course I've been listening, he would protest, And he would repeat by way of proof the last few words of whatever it was I'd been saying. He was seldom present. I don't know where my father spent his waking life, just elsewhere. What was he doing alone with a child? Where was his wife? In the country, reading. She read one book after another without looking up, without scraping away the frost on the windows. The Russians, you know, the Russians, she said to her mother and me, glancing around in the drugged way adolescent readers have. They put salt on the window sills in winter. Yes, so they did in the 19th century, in the boyhood of Turgenev of Tolstoy. The salt absorbed the moisture between the two sets of windows sealed shut for half the year. She must have been in a Russian country house at that moment, surrounded by a large Russian family living out vast Russian complications. The flat white fields beyond her imaginary windows were like the flat white fields she would have observed if only she had looked out. She was myopic. The pupil, when she had been reading, seemed to be the whole of the eye. What age was she then? Twenty-seven, twenty-eight? Twenty-eight? Her husband had removed her to the country. Now that they were there, he seldom spoke. How young she seems to be now, half twenty-eight in perception and feeling, but with a husband, a child, a house, a life, an illiterate maid from the village, whose life she confidently interfered with and mismanaged. A small zoo of animals she alternately cherished and forgot, and she was the daughter of such a sensible, truthful, pessimistic woman, pessimistic in the way women become when they settle for what actually exists. Our rooms were not Russian. They were aired every day, and the salt became a great nuisance blowing in on the floor. There, Charlotte, what did I tell you, my grandmother said. This grandmother did not care for dreams or for children. If I sensed the first, I had no hint of the latter. Out of decency, she kept it quiet, at least in a child's presence. She had the reputation, shared with a long-vanished nurse named Olivia, of being able to do anything with me, which merely meant an ability to provoke from a child behavior convenient for adults. It was she who taught me to eat in the continental way, with both hands in sight at all times upon the table, and who made me sit at meals with books under my arm so I would learn not to stick out my elbows. I remember having accepted this nonsense from her without a trace of resentment. Like Olivia, she could make the most pointless sort of training seem a natural way of life. I think that as discipline goes, this must be the most dangerous form of all. She was one of three godparents I had, the important one, It is impossible for me to enter the mind of this agnostic who taught me prayers, who had already shed every remnant of belief when she committed me at the font. I know that she married late and reluctantly. She would have preferred a life of solitude and independence next to impossible for a woman in her time. She had the positive voice of the born teacher, sharp manners, quick blue eyes, and the square, massive figure— common to both lines of her ancestry, the west of France, the north of Germany. When she said, There, Charlotte, what did I tell you? without obtaining an answer, it summed up mother and daughter both. My father's friend, Malcolm Whitmore, was the second godparent. He quarreled with my mother when she said something flippant about Mussolini, disappeared, died in Europe some years later, though perhaps not fighting for Franco as my mother had it. She often rewrote other people's lives, providing them with suitable and harmonious endings. In her version of events, you were supposed to die as you'd lived. He would write sometimes, asking me, have you been confirmed yet? He had never really held a place and could not, by dying, leave a gap." The third godparent was a young woman named Georgie Henderson. She was my mother's choice, for a long time her confidant, partisan, and close sympathizer. Something happened, and they stopped seeing each other. Georgie was not her real name. It was Edna May. One of the reasons she had fallen out with my mother was that I had not been called Edna May, too. Apparently, this had been promised. Without saying where we were going, my father took me along to visit Georgie one Saturday afternoon. You didn't say you were bringing Linnet," was how she greeted him. We stood in the passage of a long, hot, high-ceiling department, treading snow water into the rug. He said, well, she is your godchild, and she has been ill. My godmother shut the front door and leaned her back against it. It is in this surprisingly dramatic pose that I recall her. It would be unfair to repeat what I think I saw then, for she and I were to meet again once, only once, many years after this, and I might substitute a lined face for a smooth one and tough, large knuckled hands for fingers that may have been delicate. One has to allow elbow room in the account of a rival." She must have had something is how it generally goes long after the initial what can he see in her, he must be deaf and blind. Georgie, explained by my mother as being the natural daughter of Sarah Bernhardt and a stork, is only a shadow, a tracing, with long arms and legs and one of those slightly puggy faces with pulled-up eyes. Her voice remains the husky Virginia tobacco whisper I associate with so many women of that generation, my parents' friends. It must have come of age in English Montreal around 1920 when girls began to cut their hair and to smoke. In middle life, the voice would slide from low to harsh and develop a chronic cough. For the moment, it was fascinating to me, opposite in pitch and speed from my mother's, which was slightly too high and apt to break off like that of a singer unable to sustain a long note. It was true that I had been ill, but I don't think my godmother made much of it that afternoon, other than saying, it's all very well to talk about that now, but I was certainly never told much, and as for that doctor, you ought to just hear what Ward thinks. Out of this whisper jumble, my mother stood accused, of many transgressions certainly, but chiefly of having discarded Dr. Ward McKay, everyone's doctor, and a family friend. At the time of my birth, my mother had all at once decided she liked Ward McKay better than anyone else and had asked him to choose a name for me. He could not think of one, or rather thought of too many, and finally consulted his own mother. She had always longed for a daughter so that she could call her after the heroine of a novel by, I believe... Marie Corelli. The legend so often repeated to me goes on to tell that when I was seven weeks old, my father suddenly asked, what did you say her name was? Votre fille Effrole left ici, the new doctor had said, the one who had now replaced Dr. McKay. The new doctor was known to me as Uncle Raoul, though we were not related. This manner of declaring my brush with consumption was worlds away from Ward McKay's subject to bilious attacks. McKay's objections to Uncle Raoul were neither envious nor personal, for McKay was the sort of bachelor who could console himself with golf. The Protestant in him truly believed those other doctors to be poorly trained and superstitious, capable of recommending the pulling of teeth to cure tonsillitis, And of letting their patients cough to death or perish from septicemia just through Catholic fatalism. What parent could fail to gasp and marvel at Uncle Raoul's announcement? Any but either of mine. My mother could invent and produce better dramas any day. As for my father, his French wasn't all that good, and he had to have it explained. Once he understood that I had grazed the edge of tuberculosis, he made his decision to remove us all to the country, which he had been wanting a reason to do for some time. He was, I think, attempting to isolate his wife, but by taking her out of the city he exposed her to a danger that, being English, he had never dreamed of. This was the heart-stopping cry of the steam train at night, sweeping across a frozen river, clattering on the ties of a wooden bridge. From our separate rooms, my mother and I heard the unrivaled summons, the long, urgent, uniquely North American beckoning. She would follow, and so would I, but separately, years and desires and destinations apart. I think that women once pledged in such a manner are more steadfast than men. Frolet was the charmed word in that winter's story. It was a hand brushing the edge of folded silk, a leaf escaping a spider web. Being caught in the web would have meant staying in bed day and night in a place even worse than a convent school. Charlotte and Angus, whose lives had once seemed so enchanted, so fortunate and free that I could not imagine lesser persons so much as eating the same kind of toast for breakfast, had to share their lives with me, whether they wanted to or not, thanks to Uncle Raoul, who always supposed me to be their principal delight. I had been standing on one foot for months now, midway between Frolet and Falling Into, propped up by a psychosomatic guardian angel. Of course, I could not stand that way forever. Inevitably, my health improved, and before long I was declared out of danger and then restored to the relief and pleasure of all except the patient. I'd like to see more of you than eyes and nose, said my godmother. Take off your things. I offer this as an example of unnecessary instruction would anyone over the age of 3 prepared to spend the afternoon in a stifling room wrapped like a mummy in outdoor clothes she's smaller than she looks georgie remarked as i began to emerge this authentic godmother observation drives me to my only refuge the insistence that she must have had something he could not have been completely deaf and blind divested of hat, scarf, coat, overshoes, and leggings, grasping the handkerchief pressed in my hand so I would not interrupt later by asking for one, responding to my father's muttered, fix your hair, struck by the command because it was he who had told me not to use fix in that sense, I was finally able to sit down next to him on a white sofa. My godmother occupied its twin A low table stood between, bearing a decanter and glasses, and a pile of magazines, and, of course, Georgie's ashtrays. I think she smoked even more than my mother did. On one of these sofas, during an earlier visit with my mother and father, the backs of my dangling feet had left a smudge of shoe polish. It may have been the last occasion when my mother and Georgie were ever together— Directed to stop humming and kicking, and perhaps bored with the conversation in which I was not expected to join, I had soon started up again. It doesn't matter, my godmother said, though you could tell she minded. Sit up, my father said to me. I am sitting up. What do you think I'm doing? This was not answering, but answering back. It is not an expression I ever heard from my father, but I'm certain it stood like a stalled truck in Georgie's mind. She wore the look people put on when they are thinking, now what are you spineless parents going to do about that? Oh, for God's sake, she's only a child, said my mother, as though that had ever been an excuse for anything. Soon after the sofa-kicking incident, she and Georgie moved into the hibernation known as not-speaking. This, the lingering condition of half my mother's friendships, usually followed her having said the very thing no one wanted to hear, such as, who wants to be called Edna May, anyway. Once more in the hot, pale room, where there was nothing to do and nothing for children, I offended my godmother again by pretending I had never seen her before. The spot I had kicked was pointed out to me, though owing to new slipcovers, real evidence was missing. My father was proud of my quite surprising memory, of its long backward reach and the minutiae of detail I could describe. My failure now to shine in a domain where I was naturally gifted, that did not require lessons or create litter and noise, must have annoyed him. I also see that my guileless-seeming needling of my godmother— was a close adaptation of how my mother could be, and I attribute it to a child's instinctive loyalty to the absent one. Giving me up, my godmother placed a silver dish of mint wafers where I could reach them, white, pink, and green overlapping, and suggested I look at a magazine. Whatever the magazine was, I had probably seen it, for my mother subscribed to everything then, I may have turned the pages anyway, in case at home something had been censored for children. I felt, and am certain, I have not invented Georgie's disappointment at not seeing Angus alone. She disliked Charlotte now, and so I supposed he had come to call by himself, having no quarrel of his own. He was still close to the slighted Ward Mackay. My father and Georgie talked for a while, she using people's initials instead of their names, which my mother would not have done, and they drank what must have been sherry, if I think of the shape of the decanter. Then we left and went down to the street in a wood-paneled elevator that had sconce lights as in a room. The end of the afternoon had a particular shade of color then, which is not tinted by distance or enhancement but has to do with how streets were lighted. Lamps were still gas, and their soft, gradual blooming at dusk made the sky turn a peacock blue that slowly deepened to marine, then indigo. This uneven light falling in blurred pools gave the snow it touched a quality of phosphorescence, beyond which were night shadows in which no one lurked. There were few cars, little sound. A fresh snowfall would lie in the streets in a way that seemed natural. Sidewalks were dangerous, casually sanded. Even on busy streets you found traces of the icy slides children's feet had made. The reddish-brown of the stone houses, the curve and slope of the streets, the constantly changing sky, were satisfactory in a way that I now realize must have been aesthetically comfortable. This is what I saw when I read City in a book. I had no means of knowing that City, one day, would also mean drab, filthy, flat, or that city blocks could turn into dull squares without mystery. We crossed Sherbrooke Street, starting down to catch our train. My father walked everywhere in all weathers, already mined, colonized by an enemy prepared to destroy what it fed on, fighting it with every wrong weapon, squandering strength he should have been storing, stifling pain and silence rather than speaking up while there might have been time. He gave an impression of sternness that was a shield against suffering. One day we heard a mob roaring four syllables over and over, and we turned and went down a different street. That sound was starkly terrifying, something a child might liken to the baying of wolves. What is it? Howie Morentz. Who is it? Are they chasing him? No, they like him, he said, of the hockey player admired to the point of dementia. He seemed to stretch as if trying to keep every bone in his body from touching a nerve. A look of helplessness such as I had never seen on a grown person gripped his face, and he said this strange thing. Crowds eat me. Noise eats me. The kind of physical pain that makes one seem rat's prey is summed up in my memory of this. When we came abreast of the Ritz-Carlton after leaving Georgie's apartment, my father paused. The lights within at that time of day were golden and warm. If I barely knew what hotel meant, never having stayed in one, I connected the lights with other snowy afternoons, with stupefying adult conversation. Oh, those shut-in, velvet-draped, unaired, low-voice problems compensated for by creamy, bitter hot chocolate poured out of a pink-and-white china pot. You missed your goute. he suddenly remembered. Established by my grandmother, goutet was the family word for tea. He often transformed French words, like putty, into shapes he could grasp. No, Georgie had not provided a goutet, other than the mint wafers, but it was not her fault. I had not been announced. Perhaps if I had not been so disagreeable with her, he might have proposed hot chocolate now, though I knew better than to ask. He merely pulled my scarf up over my nose and mouth, as if recalling something Uncle Raoul had advised. Breathing inside knitted wool was delicious. Warm, moist, pungent when one had been sucking on mint candies, as now. He said, "'You didn't enjoy your visit much. "'Not very, through red wool. "'No matter,' he said. "'You needn't see Georgie again unless you want to. "'And we walked on. "'He must have been smarting, for he liked me to be admired. "'When I was not being admired, I was supposed to keep quiet.' You needn't see Georgie again was also a private decision about himself. He was barely 31 and had a full winter to live after this one, little more. Why? Because I say so. The answer seems to speak out of the lights, the stones, the snow, out of the crucial second when inner and outer forces join and the environment becomes part of the enemy, too. Ward McKay used to mention me as Angus's precocious pain in the neck, which is better than nothing. Long after that afternoon, when I was about 20, McKay said to me, Georgie didn't play her cards well where he was concerned. There was a point where, if she had just made one smart move, she could have had him. Not for long, of course, but none of us knew that. What cards, I wonder. The cards have another meaning for me. They mean a trip, a death, a letter, tomorrow, next year. I saw only one move that Saturday. My father placed a card face up on the table and watched to see what Georgie made of it. She shrugged, let it rest. There she sits, looking puggy but capable, "'Angus waiting, the precocious pain in the neck turning pages, "'hoping to find something in the National Geographic "'harmful for children. "'I brush in memory against the spider web. "'What if she had picked it up?' "'Remarking in her smoky voice, "'Yes, I can use that.' "'It was a low card, "'the kind that only a born gambler would risk "'as part of a long-term strategy.' She would never have weakened a hand that way. She was not gambling, but building. He took the card back and dropped his hand, and their long, intermittent game came to an end. The card must have been the eight of clubs, a female child.
0: That was Voices Lost in Snow by Mavis Gallant, which was first published in The New Yorker in 1976 and can be found in the Collected Stories of Mavis Gallant, published by Random House. The New Yorker Festival is back, and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin, too, and a performance in conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com slash festival. Again, that's newyorker.com
1: slash festival. See you there.
0: So, Margaret, in this story, Gallant gives us this kind of child's eye view of this this doomed marriage, Uh, a dissatisfied wife who's retreated into her books, a husband who's looking around for other possibilities and who's also secretly ill. And then between them, this child, mostly ignored, who seems quite clearly poised to become a writer. As you brought up earlier, Mavis says that this story was, was very autobiographical. She said elsewhere that uh, Lynette Muir was 90% her. Where do you think the fiction enters into it?
1: Well, everyone selects. She's obviously selecting, as any writer does, any mm-hmm. autobiographical writer or any semi-autobiographical one, she's selecting the details that form a, an arrangement. What she's writing about in the story is the moment when the father almost starts up something with Georgie and then doesn't.
0: And this moment, do you think she was aware of how pivotal it was at the time? Do you think this this child in the story is aware?
1: No. She's aware of something, as children are. They mm-hmm. they pick up atmosphere, but the interpretation of it is in retrospect. And she makes makes it very clear, because the voices are lost in snow— she makes it very clear that she's only getting part of it. Mm-hmm. She's guessing.
0: Right. Well, And, and Lynette is just constantly faced with this, this refusal of explanation. Anytime she asks why, she's told, because, because I say so.
1: and Because I say so. Yeah. And, and that's yes. also given at the end of the story as the reason for the father's dying. It's because I say so. Well, who is saying that? She also, no one really listens to her. She talks, no one's listening, her
0: father's mind is elsewhere, her mother's in her books. Gallant has that amazing line about the dark riddles filling the corners of life. Do you think that there's some kind of conspiracy to keep this child in the dark, or or is this just representative of
1: what childhood was at this time? That was the way it was Mm -hmm. in families like that. My own family wasn't like that. They would give you endless explanations of just about everything. But um, <laughs> most people did not. So the thing was to keep the lid on the child and get it to behave decorously in, in public. Uh, and otherwise, you know, you didn't, you didn't feel that you owed children explanations.
0: Which is funny because you know parents were children and must themselves have wanted explanations at some point.
1: And were also treated probably even more strictly than that. So, so yeah. they just had it in their heads that that's how you treated children.
0: Yeah. I mean, I wonder reading the story, if if part of the silence was simply an impulse to protect her from what's actually going on, from her parents' unhappiness, from her father's
1: illness. Possibly. Oh, reading the other Lynette Muir stories, I wouldn't be so sure of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she may just be... I mean, be you a, don't protect you know, a child by sending it off to a convent school at the age of four.
0: Yeah. Uh, and well, when
1: you... when she got back from that, as you see in the other stories, she would be made much of for a couple of days. And then they would fob her off on the maid. I mean, the alternative to the convent
0: school is being home with them and and being ignored. So perhaps it was for her own good.
1: No, I don't Um, think... Well, I don't know. You you don't know, actually, uh, how things would have turned out. But certainly she became an extremely independent person simply because she had nobody else to rely on. Mm -hmm. Shortly after that moment of the story, the father's dead. And then the mother just took off at some point Yeah, she was working uh, for the, I think it was the Montreal Star, or was it the Gazette at a time when women just didn't have jobs in journalism yeah. and she kind of elbowed her way in there and, and did it The father is an interesting character to me here because he is distracted he's he's
0: sick, He's he's got something else on his mind when he's with her, he's usually having lunch with a friend or in this particular case he's going off to perhaps embark on an affair with Georgie but at the same time, he does seem to have genuine affection for Lynette. He likes to show her off. He wants to present her. He takes her with him, which he doesn't have to do. How do you read him, you know, as a parent, as a character?
1: I, I don't know what to, what to make of it. I'm, I'm more interested in, in her image of him, which is pretty poignant. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's the one she loves, quite evidently. And he's the one that she loses pretty early in life. And he's the one that she has dreams of trying to find and being late. You know, yeah. the train is late. She's endlessly in pursuit until she realizes that it is him and that, and that he's dead.
0: The heartbreaking thing is that in, in Mavis's real life, her father went off to England to die and no one told her. No, they didn't tell her. So for years, she was waiting for him to send for her, and, and in fact, he was dead.
1: Yes, you you can't imagine people behaving that way now, um, but some of them probably still do. And it's that thing about not letting children go to funerals. Children probably should be allowed to go to funerals, not when they're two, but, but when they're old enough to understand, because otherwise they think that the person is still somehow alive. Yeah, it wasn't just
0: she was kept from a funeral. She wasn't even told No, she, she wasn't died. even told. Yeah. Yeah. On the
1: other hand, one of Alice Munro's early horror horror stories is that she was taken to a funeral. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, interesting you bring up Alice because it, it's difficult to read this story without thinking of Alice's stories. She's also written a lot about being a child in Canada in this this time period or a little bit a little bit later. And she's written about strong willed girls who were encouraged to be seen and not heard and, and to sort of quench their own Personalities. At the same time, the parents, the the peripheral characters in Alice's stories, are very, very different from this. Extremely different. What do you think that the heart of that difference
1: is? That, that Alice's stories are more rural class. Mm-hmm. The ones in Alice's stories are quite a few pegs down the class ladder. Yeah. Oh, uh, these parents in uh, Mavis's story have have a certain lifestyle. They have certain food tastes and preoccupations. They're they're further up the social ladder. They have more pretensions.
0: Right. You get a sense that the mother in the story, you know, if things had gone differently, if she hadn't married and had this child, she might have chosen to be a writer herself.
1: Do you think that... I don't know. I mean, she she was a person who goes into books as an escape, partly. Mm-hmm. She's called in the story a dreamer. And if you're only a dreamer, you're not going to be a writer.
0: Do you think that she has
1: resentment toward the child? She's not a person who likes young children, and I hate to break it to you, but such exist. <laughs> <laughs> she hasn't been liked as a young child by her own mother,
0: yeah. although
1: that grandmother has impeccably concealed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, nonetheless, you would know that you're not satisfactory until you're grown up. You mentioned earlier the sort of
0: shockingness of, of this Anglo mother having chosen a, a, a
1: French-Québecois doctor what's the What's the shock of that at the time? Mm-hmm. well, it just didn't happen much. It was two separate worlds, and as she says, the Anglophone one thought of the francophone one as superstitious. Mavis
0: makes a lot of this this sentence that the francophone doctor utters about her
1: having brushed against yeah brushed against tuberculosis.
0: I get the sense that it makes a big impact on Linnet because she's interested in words, and she's well, going not to be a writer. Well, not only that, she's
1: a fluent French speaker by this yeah. time because of having gone, gone to the convent school. <laughs> so she didn't <laughs> need to have it explained to her, whereas her father did. But why does that sentence carry so much weight for her? I think it's the lusciousness of the word. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an unusual French word. It's not something you would just toss into everyday conversation. So it's, it's poetic mm-hmm. and suggestive, and she, she comes out with some of the things it suggests. To her,
0: yeah. I mean, there's a sense that she's that she, as a child, is on this sort of precipice between health and, and tragedy. You know, she's
1: she's brushing up against something. That's, yeah, and, and we that's don't big. even know how to take that. It may have just been. I mean, you either have tuberculosis or you don't. But they didn't have tests for it in those days. Mm-hmm. But in those days, when it was so catching, everyone was terrified of it, and children in particular.
0: I want to come back to the idea of, of the title of these, these voices lost in snow, which were muffled or sort of stifled or swallowed up. It comes up over and over again in the story. What do you think it stands for in this narrative? Who's, whose voice is lost? Of the past. Mm-hmm.
1: It's the past. It's the people in her past, the dead people. The only authentic voices I have now are belong to dead people. But even those voices are are muffled,
0: on the other hand, she does. She says, "I have these voices." Yes. So she has them. Is that part of the consolation of being a writer? Is that?
1: Oh, w- search me. Yeah. <laughs> You're getting a bit too <laughs> theoretical for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, my my sense reading the story is maybe the voice that's sort of lost is is Linnet's. The, the oh, way no one no, no one listens I wouldn't to say her. that
1: because she is the voice of the story. So if if the dead people are going to have a voice. It can only come through her.
0: Yeah. She's speaking with their voices, and when she speaks, no one listens. She's giving them back
1: their voices in a way.
0: Yeah, she's giving them back their voices, and their voices are mostly critical of her.
1: Yeah, that's true. But nonetheless, (laughs) those were their voices. (laughs) And nonetheless, she has her own little ways about foxing them. She's Mm -hmm. the sofa kicker. Uh, She's (laughs) the one who pretends not to know who Georgie is. She's the one who's torn the heads off the tulips and eaten them.
0: Yeah. Um, And in that scene with Georgie, you know, the father goes there. He plays his card, which is, if you want me, you
1: have to have this child, too. I wonder why. Why he does that?
0: Yeah, I mean, he was also capable of... Well, okay, so that's the
1: thing that she does come out of it with. Yeah. He did love her enough to put her on the table as part of the deal.
0: But on the other hand, he could have shipped her off to the convent school.
1: I think it was mostly the mother who did that.
0: So for the father it was important, you know, he wasn't he wasn't gonna leave this marriage, he wasn't gonna leave this this life and leave her behind.
1: Apparently not. That's yeah. that's what we gather from that.
0: Yeah. Well that's perhaps the crux the crux for Mavis of this story. Yeah, but she's is
1: figuring that. it out. So it's the two of them together, they're going down the street together. There's a flash of a red mitten, she'll never catch up with them. But nonetheless, what she comes out of it with is he wasn't prepared to lose that card. Yeah, I think it's very,
0: very complicated. Actually, the way that that uh, Mavis layers the voice
1: here—well, she's a pretty darn good writer, of course. How else can I put it?
0: <laughs> why else would we be talking about it? Um, <laughs> but the way you you can perceive in quite straightforward sentences what the child knew
1: and what the adult knows—yes—and you can't entirely perceive it. Mm-hmm. That's why it's good. Mm-hmm. Part of it's in the snow. Part of it's in the snow, but we think we can make it out. Mm-hmm. And it's also, you can tell that in a way it's a piece for voice. It's a piece that's meant to be read aloud. Oh, I don't know whether it's meant to be read aloud, but you can hear the voice in it. Yeah. I think that's true of, of good writing in general. Mm-hmm. Because what is writing? What is writing in a book? What is a page? A page is essentially a score. Like a musical score, it's a score for voice. So it's either your voice as the reader when you're reading it, or sometimes we read them out loud. But when you do read them out loud, you can tell that they're they're constructed by the writer for voice. Well, thank you so much, Margaret. And thank you. It was a pleasure to read it.
0: Margaret Atwood is the author of the Mad Adam trilogy, Oryx and Crake, The Year of the Flood, and Mad Adam, a novel, which is coming out this fall. If you want to hear another story by Mavis Gallant, Antonia Nelson reads one on a previous episode of this podcast. Look for it on newyorker.com or in the iTunes store, where you can also subscribe to this podcast, as well as to the New Yorker Out Loud and the Political Scene podcast. Download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.